Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. Got a great show for you today. Just got off the line with Marcus King. Marcus was one of the big people who made my book a reality. He has been with uh, Cross Country Magazine for an awful long time. And he does all their gear reviews and wing reviews and is in charge of most of the marketing you see. He, before that, he did marketing for Ozone. He was with the Ozone team right from the beginning, back in the DAV day, and Mike days. Uh, he was been part of the Red Bull X Alps reporting on that since the very beginning. That's where he and I got to know each other more. It's his reporting on the race. He started flying in 1991 and was part of the British team and PWCs and has a long history of flight and all those reviews you see in Cross Country Magazine of all the different wings and all the different harnesses are because of Marcus. So we talk about all of that and then we get to a not so comfortable subject, but in this case it's all coming out pretty well. Marcus pounded really hard in September, just going out behind his house in Grioliere, which is right behind Gourdon in the Southern Maritimes in France, right where Ozone is. Uh, amazing place to fly, an awesome place to clock up hours because you fly there pretty much every day. And he was just going out for a very standard hike and fly, no red flags, no wind, nothing gnarly at all, just a completely mellow day. And sometimes that's what grabs you. Uh, he talks about the complacency, flying a different wing than he was really used to not having enough margin. As always, it's never one thing, it's a few different things, and the ground hurts. So this one looked pretty grim in the beginning. I remember getting the message right away from Ed Ewing, the editor of the magazine, and it sounded pretty rough. But four months later, Marcus is on the path to full recovery and will hopefully be flying again soon. And this is another one of those reminders that we need to make sure that every flight we take is one we put a lot of focus into. A lot of great lessons here, a lot of fun stories, a lot of great background, and I think you'll definitely enjoy it. A little bit of housekeeping before we get there. As you'll hear at the very end of the show, Marcus talks about an awesome giveaway that Cross Country Magazine is doing right now. I wanted to just put it in the front of the show too but if you subscribe right now go to xcmag.com forward slash subscribe you could be in to win a wing and it's a wing of your choice from gin advance ozone or sup air pretty cool giveaway check that out if you don't already subscribe to the magazine you definitely should it's it's a great mag and the other thing is i've got a whole slew of new patagonia t-shirts coming our way it should they should be here and i'll have them up on the website hopefully by the time this show goes live if not in the next couple days but i've needed some new shirts for a long time with our logo and our moto our motto sorry uh fly fly more talk less so if you've been looking for one of these shirts and haven't been that jazzed about the gray ones i've had forever and ever finally run out of those and i got a new batch coming so check that out on the website cloudbasedmayhem.com and I'll get it off to you. Happy New Year, everybody. Enjoy the show. Cheers. Marcus, 
welcome to the mayhem. Uh, most of the time, I I see you in the in the Alps for the Red Bull X Alps. So this is a nice way to see one another. We're gonna get into what has defined, I'm sure, much of your life the last few months. Uh, for those who don't know, you hit hit the ground pretty hard. I understand, and uh, you're making a good comeback. So we'll, we'll get to that. But I thought where we'd start for those who don't know about your history uh you know we're sitting in a party together and we're having a chat and i ask you who are you and what do you do what what how would you answer that okay well um job wise i'm the designer for cross country magazine well one of the partners actually in cross country magazine along with ed ewing and hugh miller so that's that's my main job but I've been paragliding for ooh, a long time, 30 years plus. Nice. Started back in 1991. The early, small, early days. Yeah, on the small hills of Wiltshire in England. Yeah, quite different from what the flying is around here, where I live now, which is in France. So I, yeah, I started, I was working as a programmer in a manufacturing company, and I started flying back then. Just saw an advert in the uh, in a What's On magazine. I thought that looks interesting, and I had seen it on a climbing tour in Chamonix. We'd passed through Chamonix, and I'd seen these gliders coming off the Breville, but didn't know anything about it. And that was probably a year or two before I saw this advert and went, "Why not?" All my all my mates had gone climbing in Scotland, but I had to be around to do to be on call for the company I was working for. So it was kind of a bit of a loose end and. and saw this advert and thought, yeah, why not give it a go? And I had, I was really lucky. I had four days of beautiful weather, which is quite uncommon in Britain. Huh. Yeah, right. And, you know, was able to fly by the end of it. So, and the bug had bitten almost straight away. What did that uh, instruction look like back in 91? Here's this thing, go. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> um, I think we were on airwave black magics and other such things. So the glide angle of a brick. <laughs> and we were just on sloping hills, so you could kind of just run down the hill. You might get a bit off the ground and kind of wobble your way down and then land, touch down again. I mean, there was no school building or anything like that. And the instructor, Dave Solemn, was my instructor, turned up in his Land Rover. We met in a car park. We drove up the hill, to, and that was it. I spent the day on the hill. Did you did you have any hang background, or do you start right off with PG? I started straight away with paragliding. Huh, interesting. I'd come from climb. I'd been into climbing a bit. I went to university in North Wales, which is a bit of the home of, which was kind of the home of climbing at the time. Mm. I actually met Bob Jury there while I was a student, so it was the first time we met, and we then met later through paragliding, and did stuff together, but. I just watched that. I think it's called Hugh put me onto it. A big blue sky. And I've been preparing for these talks with some of the legendary hang pilots, Roy Haggard and Tom Pagini and John Heine and those guys. And I'll be going out to California here soon to talk to them. But the, it, that documentary of the kind of the beginning of hang gliding is amazing. And yeah. the, the footage they have of exactly what you're talking about in the, but this was the early seventies, you know, when they're just, hucking it with these crazy contraptions and, and, you know, they'll fly 10 seconds or 15 seconds and just 
you know, monumentally stoked and can't wait for the next one. And it's uh, pretty remarkable. Yeah. I mean, when I started paragliding, I passed my license in Britain, went to the local club, which was the Avon Hang Gliding, Paragliding, Haven Hang Gliding Club, as it was then, I guess. And I turned up, there was two paraglide, three paraglider pilots in the meeting and a, a room full of hang glider pilots. So hang gliding was, you know, the, the thing that everybody did at that time. Right, right, sure. Uh, fast forward a little bit, then where did it go? So I kind of, I met, through doing the British Nationals and other comps, I met Mike Kavanagh. And when Ozone. they set up Ozone, I spoke to him about a job there. And in the early 2000s, I ended up moving out to France with him. Well, not with him. <laughs> to Ozone. <laughs> to come and work for Ozone as their marketing person, doing the website, okay. doing adverts, doing manuals. But back then, there was only five, five of us, five or six of us. We were in a very small office. And all the gliders came to that office to be then distributed. So it wasn't just doing my work. It was packing boxes. It was going out the, on the hill with David and Robbie, who were the test pilots at the time, helping test the bigger sizes a bit. So it was kind of, you did a bit of everything. It was really nice sort of family scene. Mm. I had a real family feel about the company and we all worked together and we all played together and so that's what brought me to France. And okay. then I'd done, I, when I was back, before that in Britain, when I was part of the club scene, I'd done the newsletter for the club. And so when I was in France and I got to meet Bob Jury, who then became the editor of Cross Country, he then asked me to join him to help with Cross Country. So I ended up, moving from Amazon to become cross-country and doing the design and layout of the magazine. But you were able course. to stay in France to do that? Yeah. yeah. So Bob was stay. We both lived in the same village. We were both in a village just behind Gordon, which is a fairly well-known flying site. It's where uh, Ozone test team test all the time and BGD are in the same area. And I think Supair are also here. It's all part oh. of the Supair test team are here. Okay. So it's no, a well-known flying area. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you fly pretty much every day, don't you? You can do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's been a more, bit more challenging in, in recent years with climate change, changing the winds a bit. Mm. Definitely yeah, when course. we first moved here, you, you'd expect 300 days a year. Oh, amazing. According to Bruce. <laughs> yeah. And you... Were you back then, were you also testing gliders or were you more marketing? Because I know now you do a lot of testing in gliders. Um, I was more, for Ozone, I was more marketing. Okay. I did get asked to test, not for, not for a safety point of view. So I didn't do the EN test style flying, but I did testing of the bigger sizes to see how they felt, see if they were in line with what the guys were saying for the smaller sizes. Hmm. So we got involved a bit in that, but. Not, not proper test flying. Not and, like, and, not the sort of test flying that Russ and yeah, honor and do now, which is you know the safety tests and all that. Sure, sure. 
And what was what was your own kind of path or journey? Uh, I always think of Jim Mallinson when I say journey. He said that's one of his least favorite words. Uh, <laughs> but what what was your? I understand you flew World Cups for a while. Uh, you know, where has your passion kind of led you with the flying aspect thing? It sounds like mostly it's been marketing in terms of the work, but uh, yeah, I know you're a very keen pilot. You spend a lot of time in the air. Yeah, so I started. Flying, when I first flew, there weren't so many of us flying. So, I mean, I remember the first year of flying, I flew about 11 kilometres, I think, on one flight. And it was in the top 10 of the British League. <laughs> I was in the top 10 of the British League. So it was very easy to get find yourself quite highly placed. So I ended up doing the Nationals, the British Nationals. And then from that, doing the World Cup. Not overly successfully. Mm. So I found myself in this bigger pool of very good pilots from Europe and, mm. and realised I didn't have the skill level that I necessarily needed. But it was fun. It was a learning process. So, And, yeah, so I kept doing national-level competitions, I guess. I never had amazing success. I'm not a brilliant comp pilot, I don't think. But I enjoyed it, and it taught me a huge amount. So it was a great learning process for cross-country flying. Yeah. I think that's probably more my passion. I, I like flying, flying through the mountains. So here we're lucky we've got some great routes from the back door. Yeah, you can walk out the back door and take off and go north. And that takes you to some very nice mountains. Yeah, the the Maritimes are one of my favorite places on earth. It's just, uh, you know, I only got to really hang out there very much for the, either the training of the races or the, or the races, but it's, uh, I always say I should spend more time down there. They're, they're just magnificent. You know, they're yeah. incredible for Bivy uh, there. I did a, one of my favorite trips in all those years of training. I think it was for the first one in 2015. I started in Chamonix at the Bravant and hiked up the Bravant and, and had my Bivy kit and just flew down the Maritimes and got to, I don't know, 30, 40 K of, of the med. And, you know, it's just incredible. You're in, you're, you're right on the, the border of France and Italy. And, and yet you feel like you kind of have it all yourself. It's a pretty amazing yeah. area. I mean, there's yeah, a lot of terrain, a lot of terrain, <laughs> a lot of big terrain. I yeah. think people and you go a bit they haven't been in there. You don't realize it. It's big stuff. Yeah. Cause it's the main chain coming to the sea. So yeah. And yeah, Tim Pentreef has made some great videos that highlight yeah, some of the possibilities and and flying through the Accra and stuff. And I yes. remember when I first did a lot of cross country flying with Bob Jury, we did some flights through the Accra early on, probably early 2000s. And I think we were some of the first people to fly through them. And it was just, I remember Bob saying it was, it's some of the most intense terrain that he's flown through and he's flown in the Himalayas and, yeah. and it, other places. So it, it really is. Uh, help me with the, um, Ebron, the, the, the fort above Lake Ebron, uh, a real famous flying site by the castle up there. The castle oh, yeah, burned Saint down Vincent. a few. Saint yeah. Well, one yeah. of my first, I, I used to do these trip. I did a couple trips with Toby Cologne with passion paragliding where he would, 
start in Annecy and end in Nice or start in Nice and end in Annecy. So it was kind of a van version of the yeah. Maritimes part of the X-Alps, but you would just, you would just create a task given the day and you'd go as far as you could. And then we'd stay there and then start from there the next day. It was really neat. It was a cool way to learn that part of the world. And uh, we, we, one day uh, we started at, at St. Vincent and flew down to San Andre and it's yeah. only, what is that? A hundred K? It's 50 K down to San Andre. Is it only 50 K? It's, <laughs> See, it's I, kind I, of a I big memory trick. It's our, <laughs> the north of uh, San Vincent, the, on the top of the ridge is a Dormeuse and there's a yep. big fort on the very top of the ridge. Yep. And that's our, one of the turn points that we normally use if we're doing triangles from here. Okay. Yeah. I just so remember that north, being northern. so awesome. I mean, some of that terrain, be terrain between there is just gray rock and spiky and, you know, yeah. it's very much kind of like my backyard, you know, it's just, whoa, where am I? You know, this doesn't seem like France. Yeah, it's really, really magnificent. Pretty stunning. It's <laughs> really stunning. And the Brits have you often have your one of your national events there in San Andre, right? I remember Russ Ogden saying that his his two favorite place to places to fly a comp were Chelan here in Washington and and San Andre. And yeah. San Andre is a pretty pretty remarkable place to fly triangles. Yeah, it's, there's lots of opportunity now, and I think the great thing about San Andre is in the past it was you. Those people just flew the Dormanuse Ridge up to San Vincent back. But now people are flying out into the flatlands and big triangles mm. out that way, out to Sistron, and then back across to the top of the Dormuse. So, I mean, Luke and Honorin and others have done some big flights from Col de Blen going out towards Sistron and out almost to um, the big Rhone Valley. Yeah. And then back across and then down in to create 300k triangles. It's very yeah, impressive. Yeah, that one what Baptiste did last year, that was that 350 or something. It's just, yeah. <laughs> even for the normal pilot, yeah. there's the opportunity to do 200K triangles around here. Yeah, Because sure. so. yeah. you just shorten some of those legs and you're still using the main thoroughfares, but you can right. to come back um, on and stuff. Magnificent place to fly. We haven't cracked that code over here yet. We just, we don't, the train doesn't quite line up for us in that way. We, we climb awful fast. We get awful high, but we just have not figured out it's, it's there. We know it's there, but we just haven't figured out how to do it. Um, you know, you have those early starts where you guys can fly 50, 60 K without making a turn, even at eight thirty. you know, you just <laughs> stick your wingtip on the terrain, keep going. It's pretty special. Uh, Okay, switching to the mag and and you you know you are the guy who does a lot of wing reports and wing testing. I would imagine that's tricky from a perspective of the magazine, you know, you want to be honest, but you also want to be you know, you don't want to potentially ruin a relationship with a, with a manufacturer. H how does that work in the back end? I think a lot of people are curious about that. You know, you want to put out uh, a report that is accurate, but, you know, gear reviews can often be swayed. H how does that work? Yeah, I think we have to be very careful about what we say about wings. As in, I don't think you could be overly negative because... Obviously, manufacturers will not take kindly to that. Mm. Uh, it's not just because, yeah, they're paying, they are paying us money for efforts, but we try to be 
totally truthful about our reviews. What I always think is I'm trying to explain to people the character of the wing. I don't think there's really bad wings these days. That's it. Yeah, exactly. And also, I, you know, performance between different wings, I can't tell. In a, in a, in a review, it's really hard to tell. Yeah. I think over time, then maybe a glider is shown to perform a little bit better. But it takes lots of people flying it in competitions or... But, you know, for the lower class wings, you don't get that information because it's all subjective. And, you know, unless you're flying exactly the same harness and clothes even, you can't compare performance. If you mm. talk to the guys at Ozone, they spend a lot of time trying to compare two wings together on glide. And it's really hard. Yeah. Because yeah, it was the, interesting. Pilot, I just... the pilots and the harness, and the clo- even the clothing, even if you've got a beard, can affect the glide. Yeah, it's crazy. The, uh, just down at the Menarca in, in Valle, and you know, the, there were quite a few pilots flying the GR5, the the Gen version of the of the submarine. And it, it, it's so interesting because none of us really know how good it goes. It, it, you know, I, I was flying the Drifter too, and I think the only one on, on that harness and you know we all kind of went yeah but we we won't know for a year really you got to put a lot of people on this thing and and fly it around and see you know is it does it have an advantage on the sub is it a disadvantage can we even tell it's you you can do all the wind tunnel testing and everything else and get the numbers but uh, like you said it's it's pretty hard isn't it it's got to be yeah from where you're sitting it's got to be nearly impossible how usable that performance is isn't it For for a glider definitely Obviously, yeah. the harness is slightly different, but and I think, yeah, again, time gives you that information if it's used right. a lot in competitions. So I guess now with the sports class competitions, we're going to get that information for that level of glider as well. Sure, yeah. Whereas before, it was only really we were only getting that for the top end gliders. Now we're seeing the true performance of gliders. Mm. But the the sports class thing, I've been meaning to do it. Uh, a show specifically on it. It's really exciting, isn't it? I mean, uh, one of the things that I love about sports like baseball and basketball and football is there's not really gear. doesn't matter, you know? I mean, unless the shoes, okay. I mean, maybe a pair of Air Jordans is a little bit better, but it's it's really down to the athlete. And uh, this has been one of the, th- it's hard when you get into sports like skiing and paragliding where the equipment is a really big deal. You know, Michaela Schifrin, you know, she ships a container of skis everywhere she goes and she's got a tuner just for her. He only does her skis. And so, you know, it's a, it's a marketable advantage uh when you when you have when you're relying on equipment and our sport really relies on equipment and so you know i've I've often thought wouldn't it be great if we were all flying the exact same thing (laughs) and then we could really see you know who is the best pilot you know then we would see that honor and still wins (laughs) you know but but probably exactly but it's it, it, it the sports class is really cool because it's it allows competition at not such a fierce end of the spectrum where you're not totally reliant on gear. It's exciting. I'm, I'm really yeah, glad I, that this is happening. I think it's a very exciting new way for the competitions. And I did a couple of the comps this year, last year, mm-hmm. sorry. 
And it was really nice to be there. It was really, it really made me enthusiastic for competition flying again because I didn't have to be on the whizzy machine. I could be on a fair, yeah, relatively safe machine. Yes. I yeah. feel comfortable on it. And they go good. Yeah. I, you know, we were just down there. There were quite a few people on the, on the Arctic and the photon and, you know, the kind of the new ENC two liners and, you know, they're, you never see them take a hit, you know, they're, they're incredibly, uh, robust in the air and, yeah. and, you know, but they have that two liner feel that we all love who fly two liners, two liner and control as well. So and the two liner control, so which is a big difference. Yeah. Which is a big difference. You, you can feel it and, and you can push them. Which yeah. is it's pretty neat. I mean, I've really I flew the photon last year mainly, and really enjoyed flying that, mm. like in Italy at Jambona, and where you can go on these long glides and you can using the rear risers all the time to control the wing, and you feel safe because you've got that control. Yeah, you have that yeah. level of extra level of control that you than you had before on seas. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I remember back in in the day. This has been a long time, but. Uh, you know, when I flew the Arctic two, you know, ENC back in the day, you know, it was just a mat, you know, at some point you're going to take a huge hit. At some point you're going to take a massive frontal and you had nothing to tell you that it was, it was going to happen. And, you know, these days now they just, you don't see it happening. They're, they're, yeah. they're, they're very, it's a, it's an exciting development. I'm sure the technology the is better and yeah, the feels better. So you, you're reacting to it a lot more. Yeah, you can feel it. You, you, you can feel what's happening with the air, which is which is great. I mean, that's you know that's why two liners are so exciting. And I think the other thing about the sports class comps is they feel very supportive. Mm. Everybody is in there to help each other get the best out of it. Even yeah. the people that are pushing to win, but you know they're willing to pass information around all the time. Yeah, and that's special. I found it a really supportive environment. A mentoring built built in in a sense. Yeah. Yeah, that that's and it was fantastic. Good to see people blossoming in that environment. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I've been really noticing in, in our scene, in the US comp scene lately, is that, uh, you know, you can, people are coming up through the ranks and, and becoming very accomplished comp pilots way faster than, and, you know, it used to be that, you know, it'd be 10 years before you'd fly an, an E&D or a, a CCC wing or, you know, a comp wing back in the day. And, and it would, it would just, it would take longer uh, to, to get there. It would take longer to learn how to perform with the best uh, in the world. And, uh, you know, with the, with the wings these days, and like you said, with the mentoring, you know, Nate made a comment, Nate scales, my neighbor, who's been in the game as long as you have, and he said, you know, you, you know, he was down in Valle and he was blown away by the scene now because it used to be competitive. You know, they used to throw beer bottles out the, at the, out of the window at each other's heads. And, you know, if you were on a firebird and, or, or, you know, there was that team versus the other team and, and it was, it was really competitive and it's obviously still competitive at the, at the world cup and, and people want to win, but it's there's a lot of mentoring going on. There's a lot yeah. of, uh, you know, people are really helping each other out and it's, it's good to see. It's yeah. a pretty neat pilot, development. As you said, pilots are accelerating through the process quite very quickly now. Very quickly. It's almost scary. But, it's just, wow. But it's, but becoming it's good pilots as well. 
exactly. It's not yeah. like a shortcut there. I'm sure a lot of that's just the trust in the glider as well. You know, you just, you have this machine that's very different than what you guys were, were dealing with where, uh, you know, you're just, the whole object is to keep the thing open. You know, yeah. now it's, we don't have to worry about that nearly as much. Not we can, really, no. We can press. Yeah. That's what, like I said, with the reviews, it's, there aren't really bad gliders anymore. There aren't, it's just gliders have different flavors. They have different feel. Mm. And, and for me, the review is to try and express that so people can choose the wings that suit their style of flying people mm. yeah people have a flavor yeah and before we get to your your accident and i want to spend most of the time in the show on that because it's it's uh you know the you've had a pretty interesting uh few months of course and thankfully i think we're heading towards a happy ending which is great but uh before we get to that, you know, I've put out a number of shows on the X-Ops. He's kind of, you know, a walk and fly down memory lane. And I've done those all with athletes. But you and, and Ed and Hugh over the years have been very involved with the Red Bull X-Ops. And I thought it'd be really fun to pause here for a second and get your take on it could just be a singular story, you know, some crazy memory that you have from it. But uh, you know, we're, we're still a ways out from, from 25, but it's a, it's a subject as everybody knows who listens to the show knows I love so much, but <laughs> it, it'd be interesting to get your take from the other side. Cause it was, it was quite different for me, obviously this time being on your side of the fence, so, you know, from the journalism side of the yeah. fence. And it was, it was pretty wild watching those guys and um, girls. It's always uh, amazing. To watch them. <laughs> and it's just every it's year, insane. every time it get they get faster and faster and you think, oh, they might not get around this year, but they do. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's, and it's been interesting how it's changed. I mean, I remember, it must have been, yeah, it was the first time and Dav de Gaulle was in it. And we were, we were in the Ozone office, we're trying to support him and Nikki, his then partner, who was, you know, supporting him. And we were just like, None of the technology was really there. We didn't have all mm. the weather forecasting like they do now. And it was just a case of ringing up, a, you know, the contacts of the company, who's the distributor, distributor in that area, ring them up, get the information. But I remember Nicky going, I don't know where Dav is. He went over this hill and I haven't got a clue where he's gone now. Because, <laughs> you know, there's hardly any tracking. It was really hard. And just the technology wasn't there. But now you can follow them. You can watch them firmly in 3D yeah. on your screen. And it's, yeah, that side of it's really changed. And we're mm. getting a lot more access to what happens as watchers, as viewers, because every team has their own media people now. Yeah. So they're busy recording everything, putting it on their own social. And right. you know, it's so much more open. And people say, I do hear a lot of people going, oh, it's more, more and more dangerous. It's getting more and more dangerous. It's, but I think actually what's happening now is you're seeing more of it. Mm. If you, I mean, I remember hearing Dab's stories at the time and it was just as wild. Yeah. You know, flying through storms, avoiding storms, getting tumbled. I mean, he told me about getting tumbled coming down through a valley and his reserve popped out. He managed to grab <laughs> it, put it in his pocket and flew on. <laughs> Of course, as you do. <laughs> but nobody really knew about it at the time. But yeah. now that would be all over social media. Right. So I think 
when people are going, I think the race is getting sketchier and sketchier. It's not. It's the same race. It's just we can see it a lot more now. Wow, that's an interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm, I'm sure. You get to see I mean, every moment. Yeah, it's it's especially it's a, now it, you were there flying alongside it, and that gives another element to it. Mm. Yeah, and I've you know I've really upped my kit since then. You know, this time I just showed up, and they went here, use this, and <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't that it was bad; it just wasn't quite right, and it was it made it really hard to take off. And you know, I had my own little X Alps adventures uh, because of the because of the filming equipment. So I've 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 now got really good gear, and we had you know we had this live platform that Red Bull gave zoom i think 48 hours before the prologue so i mean we we really didn't figure it out until the race was over uh you know we kind of had it figured out when i was dialing down overneath ellie uh, over ellie you know in a spiral dive going to the raft and that was (laughs) finally it works you know literally at the end of the race so i think that's going to be really exciting we might be able to tap into starlink next time and i think that'll be yeah the possibilities is a possibilities bigger and bigger aren't they yes exactly you know there's just so many stories embedded in that race that never even come out you know there's there's just things that happen to every team every race that are you know that would that are they're a book in themselves i'm sure yeah what's the what's the when you think of the x-ops what's what's the craziest thing you saw either personally or story you heard or you know of all the years that's a tough one i'm putting you on the spot here but <laughs> is it are there any that just i i remember one of my fondest and kind of head check memories i have is after the 2015 race you know we made it to monaco that year is the only time i made it and had you know i had the the van booked for the wrong return i just, i couldn't even go to the party we drove all bruce and i drove all night after we got to monaco and we were just hammered and just so tired and we got to uh the zoom office in fushal and ed was there and you know big ed and he he gave me this look and this then he gave me this hug that was just i'm glad you're alive (laughs) you know 2015 was a really windy year and there were a lot of accidents that year and a lot of withdrawals but you know he just kind of knew he knew what i'd gone through and he gave me this look that was just Oh, I'll cherish it forever. But it was it was a real look of concern. And I was, you know, and I, I often read that in you guys because when you're embedded and you're hearing the stories and you're reporting on it and you're and you're seeing the weather, uh, it's yeah. I know, it is a little spooky. We get to know all the, the athletes that yeah yeah. You know, this the the brilliant thing about our sport is you can talk to anybody in the sport. Yeah, and everybody's approachable. And it's, they're mm. like your friends within about five minutes because we all share this thing in common. Mm. And so when we wander around at the start and we talk to people, we become friends with them. They're, we have a vested interest in them. <laughs> and yet we worry about them. When we watch, mm. the show, watch the race going ahead from our offices, we, we're worried about these people because they're our friends. <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> we yeah. feel it's, yeah. And that, I think that's something really special about our sport is that we we get to mix with the best of, in the sport it's like walking you know meeting people that are in the nba or yeah right. football <laughs> premier league footballers and you just walk and talk with them right yeah you want to talk to kriegel go talk to him yeah. he's happy to talk I mean, to you every yeah. every top every 
everybody in the X-Alps has always got time. I know mm. they have to come and talk to us because we're the magazine, but I generally feel that they all have time. Yeah. Yeah, that is special. That's really and neat. And it's something special about our sport as well. And you walk on to Gordon, Russ is there, he'll talk to you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is really special. All right, bud. So what happened? What uh, on that <laughs> fateful day? So I think it was... It's a story of complacency, I think. Mm. It's kind of the end. It was the end of a, se- a, yeah, a season of lots of flying It was and good flying and enjoying myself. And it was just another morning doing a hike and fly. I've been doing lots of hike and fly on our local hill. And nothing special, just a normal day. Walked up, lovely conditions early in the morning. So nothing really happening. Took off, flew around a bit using some gentle lift. Flew along the hill a bit, along the ridge, and then came back. Decided to try and get up in the cliffs. And uh, I think it's taken me a while to work out probably what happened. And it is a bit of conjecture because I don't actually have a, a full recollection of what happened. It all got blanked out at the time and little snippets. I can remember snippets, but that's it. Interesting. And uh, I remember working a little bit of lift in in this corner in the cliffs. And I've, I followed it back over the sort of edge of the cliffs onto the sloping slope behind. And I turned to try and keep in this little bubble of lift. And I think I just spanned the wing at that point. Main, and looking back at it, I think I'd been flying a normal big ENC two-liner earlier in the week, which has quite long brake travel, was used to that, had been flying wings with fairly long brake travel a lot of the time, mm. hadn't flown the little mountain wing quite so much, and its brakes are set very short. So I think I just went to turn tightly and just overdid it. Not mm. in itself a problem, I recognise the problem, like, you know, we've spun gliders lots in testing and stuff. And it's something I always do with gliders when I first get them is, you know, search for the spin and just take it to a spin point and do 180 degree spin and fly out. And I think the glider started to spin, so I released. And I remember the glider going out in front, so I went to catch it. The next thing I'm on the ground. So I think I just pendulumed into the hill because I hadn't left enough space. You didn't have enough margin there. Okay. Yeah. So I sort of, yeah, have that snippet of it being in front, and then I have a then I'm and then you're on the ground. Uh, then I'm on the ground. Mm. And then I have to think about rescue. So the complacency again. I hadn't really said what I was doing. My partner, my wife, and was not there. Nobody really knew I was actually flying. Mm. Yeah, you just go out for a little quick hike. Because you fly. think, oh, it's fine. I'm just going for a hike yeah. fly. I'll be landing at the fields. It's fine. But one, luckily, one thing I've always been careful about is keeping my phone in a place where I can always reach it. And it's mm. just something drilled, been drilled into me. So luckily, I was able to get my phone and call for help. 
And uh, I was very lucky that the local school were on site. So our local instructor, Cedric Boussard, was teaching students. He got told there was something happening. He then got involved in organising the rescue. So actually the rescue went really smoothly. I was very lucky. Mm. So I could have been, if I hadn't had a phone and I, I could have been stuck on that hillside because nobody would have known I was there. Yeah, right. But luckily I was able to phone and this, the, this, my instructor got the rescue working very smoothly. He sent up his TI, ran up the hill to me along with one of the students who happened to be a, a nurse in the fire brigade. So they were running up a hill. One of his other students had a a drone, so he sent the drone up to find my exact position and guide these two guys into me. And at the same time, the the helicopter was being called and that was on its way. And luckily, another good thing here in France is we we do have these rescue helicopters and here it's very close, it's at Nice, so it's not Mm. very far away. It's 10 minutes flight time away. And I was very lucky that it was available. So it came straight to me and it was with me in 20 minutes, I think. Did they have to lift you out or could you land? They did have to lift me out. I don't remember the lift because um, I remember them arriving. They dropped the two paramedics and they came and checked me over. I said, I think I've broken my pelvis and I had some other small wounds, but... um, They then, yeah, obviously checked me over, decided I had what my injuries were, and they said, right, we're going to have to lift you out. And at that point, they gave me gas and air, and I passed out. (laughs) Because they couldn't get a stretcher in, so I was just in a harness anyway. So it would have been fairly excruciating, I would have thought. Yeah, right. (laughs) With a broken pelvis to be just harnessed out. Did you just have a little string bikini harness or a a proper, did you have some protection? I had a an airbag on the bottom of it. I had a reserve okay. as well. Mm. And I, another good thing that I had was a proper EN certified flying helmet. Because mm. yeah, I did take a pretty head. good hit to your head. I, ch- I took a chunk out of the, re- the helmet. Wow. Jeez. And it was, that was something, we had been flying in climbing helmets like probably earlier in the same year, me and my wife. And one of the readers had complained because there was some they were on some videos going, oh, you should really be flying EN and EN mm. certified helmets. And we kind of went, yeah, you're right. And at that point I went, actually, we're not even saving any weight. Yeah, When right. I looked at you're the specs, you know, compared the specs and yeah. Ed was going, I think, you know, as a magazine, we should be seen to be doing the proper thing. And yeah. I'm so glad he, just, he said that because, you know, I took a whack to a rock somewhere along the way and, and my helmet took the, the brunt of it. I'm glad you brought brought that up. So we we actually made that a you know that's been a mandatory thing in the in the X Alps, which for a long time I didn't really understand. And well, I mean, climbing helmets got to be or ski helmet got to be just is good, but they're not. They're not made for the same thing, um, no. and uh, it, by a long stretch. And so the and like you said, you know the 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 Supper helmet. I think Ozone's got one now too that are they're just as light. You yeah, know, you might yeah as well. that's what I was using was a Supper pilot. Yeah. The pilot, yeah, which is great. I mean, that's what I've been using for years. Um, so broken pelvis, what else? Uh, a broken vertebrae up in the mm-hmm. thorax. 
which was, I believe, from the sort of um, hitting over, um, bending over under the impact. Okay. So your body gets thrown forward, and that that movement is enough to break a, a vertebrae. Mm. And I, I think it was a couple of cracked ribs and usual stuff. And so, yeah, I was taken to hospital and was left in a coma for a, a day, kept in a coma Ooh. for a day. Oh. And then... So you were in... You were... So oh, once so I passed they, out... They the, induced you in a coma? So once I'd had the gas and air, I passed out and I didn't come around for a whole day. So they kept me oh. under for the next day, next 24 uh, hours. They did that on purpose? Uh, yeah, because they wanted to stabilize me. Ah, okay. Oh, wow. Okay, so there was there was risk then of spinal cord injury. Yeah, they weren't sure at that point. Yeah. I mean, I remember it, it's obviously one of the first things you check when you're sure. lying on the hill. They're going, oh, yeah, I can move my feet. That's all right. But as they said to my wife, that's no guarantee because when they move you, they're, they're, doing, they're keeping you alive. That's all they care about. Sure. Really. Right. You know, that's the first thing is they're keeping you alive. Yeah. So if they have, you know, obviously they will try their best to keep you, your spine straight and stuff, but they can't guarantee it. And they, and with obviously with the pelvic injury, there was lots of grinding going on down there as well. So, so yeah, I was kept in the Cobra and then they operated, they did the first operation on the pelvis just to stabilize it. Okay. Two pins. And then they brought me out of the coma and I woke up in ICU on the ventilator and mouth, you know, feed tubes. Welcome back to the world. <laughs> Which is kind of, yeah, scary. <laughs> yeah, that's very scary. I, I think more scary for people watching. Like my, I've got two teenage sons who obviously came to see me and I, the look on their face, I won't forget for a long time. Now they're thinking, uh, is, there, is dad going to be in a wheelchair? Is he going to be, yeah, oh, man, yeah. scary stuff. And the vertebrae, did that require surgery? Luckily, that didn't, no. I had okay. scans and they decided it didn't need surgery. So was that a, uh, forgive my lack of uh, body knowledge here, but is that the, was it a disc or was it the vertebra? It was a compression of the vertebrae. Okay, okay. According, oh yeah. So you're so a little bit Stan shorter. says it's a 50% squashing of that vertebrae, but without any bulging. So that's a good thing. There was no bulging into the okay, okay the central canal. Well, what do they do for that? Do they go in and, and do uh, MRIs and just make sure there's no little yeah, pieces had, that can cut stuff? Yeah, so and... I had MRI scans to okay. check that that was all right. And that's when they decided they didn't need to do surgery on that. Okay. But, How long were you in hospital? Well, I was in, so I was taken to Nice Hospital, which is the local emergency air, hospital for our area. And that's where I had my, so that's, I was there in ICU. They then did the first operation. And a couple of days later, I had my, the main operation, which was to put in two big screws and a plate across the front of the pelvis with lots of little screws. Mm. So I look like a Meccano set now. But, um, and they, so I was there for probably 10 days. And then here we are, lucky we've got these rehabilitation centres. So I got moved to one that's in grass, which is just 
basically you can see Gordon flying sight from it. <laughs> and uh and there they can do physio. There's you know, they have lots of physios and it's you've got all the stuff you need to make your recovery mm. to get you back on your feet. For me, the biggest thing was I had to wait for the bones to heal before they could do too much. So I had two months of not being able to go above 45 degrees Ooh. inclination. So basically flat on my back, partly because of Ooh. the vertebrae and partly because of the pelvis. Oh, God, that's a long so that time was, to lay around. This was the, that was the hard part mentally, just the waiting. And also, what did you, what did you experience there? What, what, what were some of the, uh, did you latch on to any, I don't know, did you start meditating? Did you just read like crazy? Did you watch Netflix? What were you, what were you doing to help get you through that? I, yeah, did a lot of reading, did watch quite a bit of Netflix. I mean, I got <laughs> lots of good advice from some quite, you know, well-known pilots with straight been through was messaging me lots. And like Tom Dodola, who had quite a big accident, I think, said, just take every day, one day at a time, and that's yeah. so such good, in, such good advice because it's really easy to go. Oh, it's, only, it's six weeks is my my goal. I get six weeks and I'll be all right. And then mm. you get six weeks, and the surgeon goes, "Actually, you need another two weeks." And you just drop. I had that mm. in that they said you get different information from the surgeons along the way, and they say so. It'll be six weeks for repair, and then you can start walking. And then you get to six weeks, they go, no, you need a bit more because your bones haven't consolidated enough. And mm. when you set that goal and it's taken away from you, it's it such a it. huge mental drop. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't mind admitting there were tears at <laughs> those moments. Absolutely. They were quite bleak moments. Mm. But, you know, all the advice I was giving people giving and taking one day at a time, and that's really helped. And I just kind of focused on working for each day and then you go oh it's several weeks have gone now and yeah it's only a couple oh, that, more weeks that day's done yeah right but it's... not try to think too far ahead mm. and just do for me it was you know i was motivated to do what i could with the exercises exercises i could and the great thing is because i was in this rehabilitation center with the physios there they even when i could only lie down they would take me up on my stretcher bed into the physio room and I would do exercises with my lower legs and with my upper arm, you know, with my arms to keep, build the strength there, just to keep everything moving, but without putting force on it. So it meant that when I finally got the go ahead to stand up, I could move a lot quicker, I think. Mm. And mm. the acceleration, once you could stand up, it was like one in a couple falling. of weeks, I went from not walking, to walking with a hoist holding me up, to then walking with a, a big walker frame, to then walking with a normal frame, to walking with crutches, to walking without the crutches, all in the space of two weeks. And it just felt, that just felt really incredible. Kind of like being 11 months again. <laughs> it <Yeah>. sounds like <laughs> you just suddenly go from the ground to the to the sky. Whoa, I'm doing it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably just as exciting as it yeah. was back then. Um, but you do these things and you kind of, I remember thinking paragliding and climbing are really good training for some of these <laughs> recovery things because a lot of it's the fear of the unknown. You'll, When you first take weight on your 
hips again. You're like, is it going to, what's it going to be like? Is it going to hurt? Is it going to break? (laughs) Are we going to fall over? And I think for us as paraglider pilots, and, and I've come from a climbing background a bit, you do get used to taking those steps into the unknown a bit. Mm, and I think mentally we're conditioned a bit to be able to do that. So it's, I think that helps with our recovery. Mm. And I definitely was able to draw on some of that and be a bit more mentally strong because we had that. Was there guilt involved, you know, with your family, with your wife, with your kids? I, I know that, you know, Ed made a big point of when I was preparing for this to talk to you that, you know, you're full-on family man you take your family very seriously you spend a lot of time with them uh you know i recently had a guest on who also had an accident towing accident dad spencer a friend of mine out here uh he had a towing accident in minnesota and he talked about that just this um you know you just overwhelm you 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 feel you're not contributing to the family you're not helping out with dinner you're you know you're a patient you're a you're a baby you're getting taken yeah. care of it's just especially i think men are not very good at this <laughs> we're, we're we're not very good at at being convalescent yeah and i think i think i had you had to kind of almost mentally turn some of your wanting to take control and <laughs> you had to turn mm. it off mm. and sit back and let people do stuff for you because otherwise yeah. you'll get frustrated you'll spend it was yeah it's some of it's so much of it is in your head and you have to sometimes take a step back and go no i have to let these people take over because they know what they're doing they are caring for me and and it is hard as you say especially for probably for men that are control freaks or Mm. and i think most a lot of paraglider pilots are control freaks as well yeah (laughs) quite strong personalities and egos even the quieter ones and Mm. It's why we do this sport. It's part of why we do the sport, I think. Mm. But yeah, for guilt. Yeah, you obviously feel bad for the family. I mean, I'm so lucky that I've had a wife that's just she is a pilot as well, so she understands that side of it. That's helpful. But she's been a solid rock through the whole thing. She's been there mm. all the way and supported me and we've obviously we've discussed flying again together. It and she understands that flying is such an important part of our lives that, you know, it's almost it, feels weird that I wouldn't not fly again. I was going to say, is there, is there, have there been any of those conversations? Is there, you know, in any of the teary moments, has there been any, yeah, I'm not going to do this again? I did. At one point earlier on, I was like, will I fly again? I don't know. I don't know if I'll fly. Mm. And I think, like you said, the guilt thing is very much in there. But you have conversations with the with like conversations with my wife. I've had conversations with the boys as well because they're old enough; they're teenagers, so we can have those sort of conversations, and and that helps you realise that it's part of you. And it's for me. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm sure not everybody would come to the same decision, and that's everybody's, you know their own person but for me it's such been such an important part of my life for 30 years it for me it would feel weird if i couldn't come back i mean i'm not Are you there flying yet. now no okay because 
I think I, it doesn't feel like I'm ready yet. Physically. Physically. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I'm sort of only walking 3K at the moment, maximum. Okay. Yeah. Still a bit of an effort. There's, there's some bits of nerve damage in the feet. When was the accident? Remind me the date. I remember uh, Ed sent me a text that day, but it was September the fifteenth. So it's been quite a while. But October, November, December. So it's been three. Wait, October, four September, months. October, four months. What but, is the yeah. prognosis? Is it one hundred percent? Is it eighty? Where, where do the doctors think you'll get? I've been told it should be a full recovery. Huh. Great. Although I might get some pain where the pelvis wasn't quite closed properly. Okay. So maybe not doing big, huge walks. <laughs> mm. But yeah, the prognosis is good. And is this your first is this your first pound in paragliding? No, I I did break a vertebrae very early on. Okay. Actually in the World Cup in Switzerland many years ago, like twenty five years ago. But that mm. was Fair, yeah, relatively minor in the fact that it was a compressed vertebrae. I wore a corset. Just a hard landing. Wore a corset for a few months, and that was it. Okay. At the time, it felt big, but yeah, compared with what's just happened, it, I right. realised it's not that big. But but it did have. I know it had a an effect on my flying afterwards, mm. as all these things do. Like I became a lot caref more careful about landings after that accident. Yeah. Do do you when you think about flying now, coming back to it, or you know, you, I'm sure you've kind of envisioned your first flight after this, you know, off some lovely peak in the behind your house. Is it you really is it is it scary to think about that? Is it oh I can't wait? How does that feel? A bit of both. I think. Uh, yeah. I think. Yeah, I really love flying and I, I love the freedom of it. So I can't wait to be back in the air. But I, I know I'm pretty sure it'll be scary that first time. Yeah. So I'm a bit nervous Imagine. about that and a bit, you know, nervous about how I will react, mm. having had such a big hit. Yeah. But then I'm also I've had so many people messaging me about their instances and like telling me about their stories. You know, it gives you hope for your future and you go if they've done that i can do it and mm. that was one of the reasons i was really happy to talk to you about this because a lot of people i didn't broadcast it much at the beginning because it was all a bit personal it was a little bit scary and a bit yep i didn't know where it was going and but as i've got better i've you know put stuff on instagram and stuff like walking out of hospital and things like that and loads of people have then message me going it's great to see that it's really encouraging for me i'm in the same situation i've had an accident mm. and it was the same for me um like tom was one person that got in touch and violetta her story with breaking her pelvis obviously mm -hmm. that was close to me and and maud perrin who broke her pelvis last year the acro pilot who's now back in the air and seeing mm. these people you know overcome it and move on, especially people like Violetta, who's not only can overcome it, but is now in the world championships. It's competing at a high level. It's on the podiums at high level comps, and you, and it helps you move on. 
and overcome it yourself. It's not so unknown. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and and with with Violetta, I, I need to get her on the show about that. But it, you know, it, it wasn't just one. You know, she, I think yeah. she's had six, as as I by my count, pretty major incidents. Uh, not all of them physical. Not all of them, you know, uh, ended up in the physical harm, but uh, or trauma, but still traumatic. You know, it's traumatic going in, and you know, you know she's. She's really stuck with it. It's impressive. Yeah. And again, it's the beauty of our sport is we have access to all these pilots that will take their time to talk to you as well. They've, mm. been so, I feel very blessed that I've had so many people sending me messages. Like every day in hospital, I was getting messages from around the world from pilots, some that I knew really well and some pilots I didn't know very well, just mm. giving me encouragement, giving me, you know, their... Their bless, yeah, their wishes, and yeah, it really helps. It really, really helps. That's interesting to hear. I I never know how to approach that. It's always, uh, you know, it's is it too much? Is it too little? Is it? It's it's great to hear that those were all received so well. It's nice to hear from everybody. Yeah, for me, it was really helpful. <laughs> ah, just fantastic. Yeah, you know, maybe feel part of the family again. And, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. To me, paraglidings are just one big family, and I feel very privileged to have found this sport that gives us that feeling. I had a kind of a similar complacency type thing that that ended better in terms of you know the the lack of trauma, but mine was a throwing reserve that wasn't attached. Uh, and I've talked about this on the on the show before, but it was switching gear late night you know, coming back from a comp, you know, dark, didn't want to wake my family, just blew it, just completely blew it. And then flew the next day at, you know, long, long drive and then doing some acro training over the dirt and, and through and wasn't attached, you know, just the, the most basic, most idiotic mistake there is. And, and then the second part of it was that because I was flying, you know, a, a different, you know, I'd been on my comp harness stuff and suddenly I'm on my sup air you know uh acro kit i just it didn't flash into my mind immediately that i had a second reserve so i watched the one fly away from me and went and literally thought wow that's funny and you know it's just perfectly deployed reserve that wasn't attached to me but you know had i reacted faster i did end up throwing my second one but it took some amount of time you know it seemed to me be to be forever it was probably two seconds but you know i was already very low and i threw the first one so the second one i i threw and i watched it roll out to the end and then i hit the ground and so it didn't have a chance it didn't deploy but it was along the same type of lines that that you know it was the gear switch that yeah. uh you know my mind just wasn't and ever since then you know we always talk about you need these cheap mistakes Ever since then, you know, when I go from my hike and fly to my comp kit to my acro kit, you know, it's this, I do it every flight now where it's, you know, my, my hand goes down to the, it, it now I'm on a different bit of gear. Now, this is where this reserve is. Cause it's different. You know, we've done a lot of talks over the years and the magazine has been very good about covering this, that they should all be the same. But until that time, you know, we, we have to just re, 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 remind our brains over and over and over and over, you know, where this stuff is. You, you didn't have time for a reserve, but it's, it sounds like the, the switching of the gear is, uh, 
that's gotten me as well. The break thing. Yeah. That's, that's also gotten me, you know, some of us fly a lot of different kit. Um, and Uh, you especially fly a ton of different kit. (laughs) But, and it's not something I didn't know about because a friend, a friend of the magazine, a writer, somebody that writes for the magazine, Andy Pag had a big crash in the pool a few years ago where he'd been flying tandem all season, jumped on his solo wing, forgot the spray travel was much less span hit the hill Mm. and broke his back. And that's, I've always remembered him telling us about that. And so it's not something I didn't know, but yeah, you don't think about it. You need to think about these things. Got a lot of lessons here. The, The, given the span of your flying and, you know, you had the, the, the one accident in Switzerland at the, at the World Cup. This one sounds like kind of complacency, margin, gear. How do you incorporate this? What are you thinking about in terms of just uh, when you do get back in the sky? I, I mean, that sounds like that would be it. Those are all great lessons. You know, like yeah, I said, I think, we need these, but. <laughs> I think, yeah, to make sure you're in the moment all the time and think about. Yeah, every flight is a flight. Yeah. It's not just a little fly down to go and land. Yeah, once you're off the ground, it's, the consequences are high if you make mistakes. So you have yeah. to treat every flight with respect. Mm. I wonder how it's uh, – how has it impacted your wife's view of flying? Is she less excited about it? Same? Is it well, impacting actually, her? She's- not flying at the moment anyway, because she oh. did her ACL last oh, year. Oh, shoot. So she's on a recovery from that. But she's due to start flying before me, I think. So she seems quite up for it. I was, yeah. I thought it might affect her as, as well. but And I, I'm sure it has. Mm. You can't be around accidents and not be affected, can you? Sure. Especially when it's people that are close to you. And mm. uh, But... She's, you know, she's worked in the industry. She's, so she gets to hear about, I mean, we get to hear about a lot of accidents and we, so it's not something we don't know about. I think if you're a, maybe if you're a weekend pilot, you can maybe ignore that side of it a bit more. But if you're in comps and around, yeah, right from the magazine, we hear about probably every, <laughs> like lots of the accidents that happen. So, it's not like something we can get away from knowing about. Mm. That's interesting. I was just actually talking last night with my wife, not about accidents and not about paragliding, but there's a Dave Chappelle bit in his la- latest, you know, comedy stand-up comedy series where he he starts talking to a young person in the audience and says, "You know, I I really feel for you because, you know, back in my day, I remember being at school when the Challenger blew up." And it was a huge deal. The whole world. I mean, people were, you know, it's it's like Kennedy assassination. You know where you were, you remember it. It's a big deal. And now with social media and the news around the world, everybody knows everything if you want to. You know, you, you have access to everything and you just become Gaza, Ukraine, bad stuff every day all the time and and it's it's hard to feel much emotion about really bad things because it's you just you're inundated you know it just kind of oh bad 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 scroll 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 
Um, and, and our sport, unfortunately, does have a lot of this. And I, I have noticed even in myself that you know, some, some things are just – they just kind of brush aside. Oh, another pound. Yeah, and then there are some like Nick Nanans that really – you get desensitized. That's the word. And there are some like Nick Nanans that just I think really shake the foundation of, you know, well, if he could get hurt uh, – yeah. I mean, and obviously he was taking enormous risks mostly, but not that day, you know, not the day that he went in. It sounded like a pretty reasonable day to go flying. Um, yeah, these, these these do, in a sense, not set you back, but they grab you, don't they? I mean, they just, yeah. whoa. I mean, it's it's that realization that if it can happen to him or her, it can happen to yeah. everybody. I think it's interesting what you said about not taking risks. Because I think that's one of the things that I've maybe struggled a little bit with is the fact that I thought this was a really safe thing I was doing. Right. Yeah, that the hike and fly thing, this that particular day, style of hike and fly yeah. is something I did a lot and it was always something I felt was very safe. Because mm. it was from a known site in a, you know, with good weather always and it's not, not like flying cross country through big peaks or yeah on strong days when it's going off. Yeah, it's just, I, it, it felt like a safe thing to do, and then still I managed to hurt myself doing that. So that's yeah. I mean, I get, I get that's the the that was a more uh, articulate way of saying what I was trying to say is that I in some ways I don't like these accidents more. Yeah, <laughs> they do make you damn think it. More really? I mean, a really, really good pilot who's very experienced, who's got a ton of years under his belt, and you know, it wasn't you weren't competing in the X Alps when it's blowing sixty k an hour. No, you know, it's you're up day. for a morning, perfect, perfect day. Uh, you know, I, I went in pretty hard and beer on a pretty perfect day uh, where you know it was just what the hell just happened. And it was, but then a, that's complacency, isn't it? So, absolutely, yeah, complacency. So it's, it's a chapter in yeah, the book because you when remember it's you, on, you, you helped me write that book you're a fully lot. Engaged. <laughs> that's it. Uh, that's an interesting thing. I mean, for sure, we I, I spent a lot of time with Jurgen, the safety director of the Red Bull X Ops this year up at Trace Cime when we were, you know, we were waiting for Ellie to come through, and so we, we'd seen a few athletes come through. And we had a long chat about this this very thing you know just the the enormous risks that that kriegel is willing to put himself in to to win and yet um you know we don't see many accidents at that level we 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 have over the years we've seen accidents but they haven't been you know knock on wood there hasn't been a bad one and uh it it is quite interesting i mean i've reflected on this a lot that you are taking so much more risk and yet you are at much less risk in the race i believe after doing it because i could not take that kind of risk a day before the race or a day after the race pretty much guaranteed i'm gonna pound because you're you're just you're in it and you're 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 you have this invincibility which i know is not accurate but it's it's a it's a mental you are in it you know there's nothing else there's no other distractions there's no complacency there's no you're you're on the you're on the ball you're paying attention yeah i'm sure i think yeah i mean i've i've not 
I've done some hike and flight races and my experience of them was they're incredibly um, mental, mentally draining because mm. your brain is just going all the time. Yeah, right. And you're on that heightened level while you're flying and finding takeoffs and preparing to take off. And But yes, you're taking risks, but because your brain's working that much harder, you, you're taking control of them. Mm. taking control of the situation so you're less likely to have an accident even though you're in a riskier riskier environment yeah but you it's... yeah you don't operate like that normally do you no and it is interesting i mean to to in my experience to fly well and to cover kilometers you really want to be more in a flow state you want to be very relaxed it's kind of the opposite side of what we're talking about you know i i mean but then when you're in a flow state, of course, you're, you are very, you're letting your system, which knows what it's doing, take over and, and you are incredibly reactive and on it and your speed is, is your, yeah. your, but it's, it is interesting, isn't it? Because you don't feel very, you feel very relaxed and almost, uh, you know, I think when, when I perform the best, I'm almost asleep. Yeah. I just, you know, I'm kind of but just then when you look back, you go, actually, I was on it. I can see, were, tell yeah. I was on it. Yeah. But it was just happening yeah. sort of almost back in the subconscious. It is. A lot of yeah, it. right. Slow thinking, fast thinking. Marcus, thanks for sharing your story. I, I really appreciate it. It was probably hard to <laughs> relive some of that stuff, but I, I think it's useful and it's a good reminder for all of us that uh, of what we're doing. Yeah. Aviation's, aviation's dangerous. Yeah. You should bear that in mind when you take off. That's why complacency. Every flight's a flight. Yeah. Okay, Marcus, we're going to sign off here, but uh, anything else you want to say? I understand you guys have a nice little promo going on. Yeah. Just, we'd love people to come and subscribe to the magazine, be part of the family. It's a great, we just, we hope that it's a great source of information for pilots. And it brings everybody together. And at the moment, we've got a prize draw going. So if you subscribe by the end of the month, you could have the chance of winning a wing. So we got you could have the choice from Advance, Ozone, Gin, or Super. Whoa. You get to choose your wing? You could choose your wing up to ENC, oh. up to and including ENC. So any wing up to and including ENC from those four brands. And where do people go to do that? XCMag.com forward slash what? Subscribe? XCMag.com forward slash subscribe. There we go. And you can see the different options. And you don't have to have the paper magazine. You can have the digital magazine if you're on the road all the time. So you can just subscribe to the digital magazine. All the subscribers are going to be in the prize draw. And that includes all the subscribers that supported us over the years that we're very grateful for. They'll all be in the drawer again. Fantastic. What a, there you go, folks. Uh, go to xcmag.com forward slash subscribe and begin to win a wing of your choice. Marcus, thanks. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm, I'm excited for the healing you've had and the healing to come and excited to see, uh, see you back in the air one of these days. And there's no rush. As we've yeah, all sure learned, there's, there's plenty of time to partake in this incredible activity so good luck and uh yeah fast healing thank you great to speak to you
find the cloud-based mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher, or however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. And of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing, a lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind the scenes costs. So if you can support us financially, all we've ever asked for is a buck a show. And you can do that through a one-time donation through PayPal, or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out. We put a new show out every two weeks. So for example, if you did a buck a show and every two weeks, it'd be about $25 a year. So way cheaper than a magazine subscription. And it makes all of this possible. Uh, I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that uh, pretty frequently, but I for a whole bunch of different reasons, which I've said many times on the show, I don't want to do that. I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show. And I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people. And these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. Um, You can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, We've tried to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, little video casts that we do and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear We don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us, then just let me know and I'll set you up with an account. Of course, that'll be lifetime and hopefully you're being in a position someday to be able to support us. But you'll find all that on the website. Uh, All of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought cloud-based mayhem merchandise, t-shirts or hats or anything, you should be all set up. You should have an account and you should be able to access all that bonus material now. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your support, and we'll see you on the next show. Thank you. Thank you.